This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. person's case is in NamUs as 33948. Uh, she's a Caucasian female between 5 feet 2 inches and 5 feet 5 inches tall, weighing between 140 and 160 pounds. She goes into NamUs June 4th of 2016, but her date of last contact is listed as December 25th, 2011. Um, now, where this takes place in terms of reporting is the Lexington, Kentucky, the Lexington, Kentucky Police Department in uh, Fayette County. She's 32 years old when she goes missing. She would be 43 today. Now, she's got a couple of different names in here. Uh, the, the official name is Shonda Renee Baldwin. She has dark brown hair that can be mistaken for black at the time she goes missing. And it's, uh, it's long, like middle of her back. She has hazel eyes and she typically wears glasses. The last thing she was seen in was baggy t-shirt and blue jeans uh, with her glasses and tennis shoes on. Both ears are pierced. She has a scar on her forehead She has a heart with a banner on her left upper chest and a small heart with a sword through it for tattoos. Uh, It's on her right ankle. And depending, like you can read a couple of different stories about her on the internet. She does not have a lot of coverage. Um, She may use the last names Dixon, Grimes, and or Scott. According to Charlie Project, Baldwin was last seen in Lexington, Kentucky on December 25th, 2011. She said she was going out of town with her boyfriend and would be back in a couple of weeks. She never returned home. Her boyfriend stated they went to Tennessee where he got sick and he had to go to a hospital. A mutual friend then took Shonda to a Kroger store to get money and then dropped her off at a bus station. She may have been planning to take a bus to Louisiana to meet someone she knew from the internet. 
Shonda was said to be very close to her family and kept in regular touch with them prior to her disappearance, but she has never been heard from again. Now, there's some variations I've seen on online where she can be as short as four foot eleven and weigh potentially as much as 190 pounds. There's a there's a lot going on here. Multiple places online list the sources for her as Kentucky Arrest and Kentucky Online Offender Lookup. Uh, I thought that was a little strange that that is where we're heading. Oh, you actually are messaging me that as, uh, as we look at it. So if you go to VineLink or the Kentucky version of it, which is cool, K-O-O-L, they have her listed as being on uh, probation. Yeah, so her probation, uh, it actually ended, I mean, I'm sorry, it actually began after she was missing. And she's considered to have absconded. While, uh, while I was looking at all of this, uh, Meg actually sent me her cool link, which I was about to start talking about. And it has her listed as absconding as of uh, an unknown date after January 3rd of 2012. That's so interesting. Well, and it looks like she was uh, in trouble uh, for flagrant non-support. Oh, okay. So this is a child support case. Right. So it's not, um, so she was about to be on probation for flagrant non-support and there's not a whole lot of information I imagine because it's, um, it is what it is, a child support case or whatever the situation is. Um, but she basically is reported missing shortly before her supervision begins. She wasn't going to jail, Okay. She was just going to be on probation, right? Yeah. It looks like she's, so she's got a bench warrant, failure to pay support. And then like you said, flagrant non-support. So what's interesting is all that having been said about, uh, about what I was just saying, um, she has an arrest that is marked as March 1st, 2011. She has an arrest that's marked as November 24th, 2010, which I may be wrong on that, but I think that's going to be right around Thanksgiving. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting that she goes on probation, which means typically you go on probation the day you're adjudicated in court. Huh. I wonder who actually reported her missing in all of this. Well, so I didn't see this initially. And then after I saw it, I meant to tell you before we started recording, because I'm not entirely sure if it's, her family, but now there is a statement that says that um, her family has not been in touch with her and that they were in touch with her previously. The other element is the plan that she might have been going to taking a bus to Louisiana to meet someone offline or that she had met online in person. Um, And so that adds this sort of like possible stranger danger element to it. It could just be a complete coincidence that she, I I don't feel like this 
I don't know what the terms of her supervision probation, what supervisory probation were, but it doesn't seem like it would be worth running away over. Well, it looks like they've got her on a D-level felony. Which right, but she's means still she's just, done it multiple times. Well, yeah, because it's flagrant non-support, right? That means a lot of non-support. But she still isn't going to jail, right? Right. No, she and, she normally would not be going to jail because they want to be able to get they want you to be able to pay the money. Sure, and uh, I, so I don't know. I mean, she is considered to have been absconded. I don't know if her family is also missing her. It appears that they are. Um, so I'm not really sure how to go about this exactly. Okay. So one of the things I ran into in looking for her is there are two different Sean the Baldwins with different middle names. Okay. I thought it was going to be, um, I chose her because it's a Christmas. Correct. It was in your list and it was a Christmas disappearance. She has uh, this active case for a felony. I, you know, looking at it all, I don't actually know what's happening here. And I thought I knew, I now know less. That's kind of how I felt as I was continuing on with this. <laughs> yeah. So you would think with, okay, so the name Shonda Baldwin, the way that it's spelled, it's a, it's a pretty easy name to stand out in terms of like searching for that name. And when I went looking for it, I genuinely... I, I was shocked at how little she's mentioned. But now that I see this, I wonder sort of what is what is happening here. It almost, and I've had this suspicion before. I think sometimes people end up in missing person situations simply because law enforcement can't necessarily find them. Right, and I don't know what that protocol is as far as like whoever was in charge of her probation. I mean, when she didn't, report in or whatever didn't happen because she's been missing it could be this could be the result of them saying hey i can't find her right yeah i mean because hmm. if they don't say hey she hasn't shown up then they're not doing their job right right and I'm so just... i feel like that pushes an action that i don't know would have happened otherwise yeah, I you know pulling up a couple of different things here. So January third, two thousand twelve, is a Tuesday, and it's right after the New Year on Sunday. I'm thinking because it's Christmas Day. Somebody said the last time we saw her was Christmas Day, and that would not be like a probation person. That would be like a that would be a family member. Yeah, because. It looks like most of the Kentucky courts open back up on the 3rd. So it could even be a paperwork issue. Okay, so go with me on this. So the courts are kind of closed over the holidays. Even if they're not officially closed, they're kind of closed. Right. And if the way that that generally works, unless it's something serious happening, the last two weeks of the year is administrative. You're not going to see a lot of trials. Sometimes you'll see a trial, but it's rare. Um, my thinking here is an administrative order goes into place, placing her on probation in the last 14 days of December, 2011. But the way that crosses the judge's desk, making an official happens on January the 3rd. 
because they're closed on January the 2nd, 2012. So I'm betting that she gets placed on probation and is immediately absconded. Okay, so you think it may not have anything to do with it then? Yeah, I, so I think what happened was, I think she probably went into court sometime between the 10th and the 20th. And she gets an order that states she must pay this, this, and this, and she's going to be on probation. And she is told to report to the probation office and the court does some checking and they're like, they're open this date to this date and I will issue orders accordingly. So she's officially going to be on supervised probation, which means she has to check in with someone and take a drug test and all those things. It just happens because it falls over the holiday and it's a child support, which she doesn't seem to be getting jail time for that she's not tracked real well between that court date, between the 10th and the 20th and the first day of court back. So they take a holiday Monday, January the 2nd, 2012 and courts back in session on January 3rd, 2012. And that's the date it states she's on supervised probation. My guess is, That's the date the judge signed it. She didn't show up. So when probation gets it and she hasn't shown up, she's immediately listed as an absconder. So it sounds crazy to say everything I just said, but if you look at her online, it does kind of look like, well, she can't possibly be missing on Christmas 2011 because they put her on probation January 3rd, 2012. But that's really just a week. Correct. Right. It's actually, I mean, cause she's missing like right before. My question is, do you have any idea how you can, cause her conviction date is March 11th of 2011. Right. Could she have been in jail or was she just waiting for sentencing? Like what happened between. She probably gets out on pretrial diversions. So she's not going to be in jail for okay. nine months in Kentucky. I don't think. Well, so my okay, so what I'm asking is like, is probation coming after she served time? Is she is probation her sentence? It could be a mixture of the two things. Like she could have sat there while the court docket rolled out for the year and they released her at the end of the year because it's a nonviolent crime that has other uh superseding priorities. The the primary priority in a child support case is that she paid the child support. Which you can't do while you're in prison. Correct. My guess is, you know, the probation would be the sentence. She may have done some pre-trial time. She gets out and then sort of gets lost in the ether. But I'll say this. When that happens, I personally believe that she's either having a last hoorah like from the perspective of she's planning on getting it out of her system before she goes on probation and has the pee. And I don't know that she uses anything, but if she were using drugs, that would be the time to do it. If she has other activities she likes to do, that'd be the time to do it. On Uncovered, they had a sentence that wasn't on the rest of that. And that sentence says, a couple of sentences. Shonda was very dedicated to her family. She was in a relationship and made contact with me every day. Keep that in mind. The last time she talked to anyone, she said she would be gone for a couple of weeks. 
Okay. So that is on Uncovered's website where they are kind of another aggregate that's uh, like collects information from Charlie Project, et cetera. Sure. So that like lends more towards her having taken off to meet the guy on the internet, right? Sort of. That's what I'm thinking. But the fact that she goes into NamUs on June 4th, 2016 and was on probation, she's going to be an NCIC as an absconder. So Correct, yeah. She's either got really good fake credentials or something's happened to her. is able to go under the radar or, yep, yeah, something's happened. And honestly, I don't know about you, but anytime I have to like look at, do a reality check on things as, as tough as that can be sometimes, you've got somebody who can't pay their support payments, right? And yeah, yeah. you're going to have her, you know, being this chameleon fugitive. Well, you know, and we, we covered a situation like this of how the, you know, between Halloween and Thanksgiving, we did the Deep Gold series. And now we're getting up, you know, it's almost Christmas Eve. Um, these cases, people, like sometimes weird things happen in court that I just don't understand. And then sometimes I look at like this type of case and I, I can't help but wonder how did people expect this was going to play out? I, I fully believe that people can, like, you know, when Tommy Thompson's found with the book, How to Disappear, that his girlfriend is reading or whatever, and the marshals go after him, and then ends up doing all this time on contempt of court charges, which aren't even criminal charges. And then I look at something like this, and, like, this is a mom who is being brought up on flagrant child support issues. And then you got somebody throwing in on NamUs that Shonda was very dedicated to her family. Okay. Something's not making sense here. I don't I know. I don't know who has what information that I'm not understanding here. It's almost like all of these things can't possibly be true, right? Yeah. So is this a master criminal? Is this someone who dropped out of sight and is never seen again? Or is this someone... Who He's maybe got duped into being a victim of some kind because of their lifestyle. And I would have to say, especially since she wasn't going to jail. Okay. This is just probation. Whatever she, whatever happened to her, I don't feel like she set out to abscond like to the true nature of the definition of that word, right? Why would you abscond from probation? But I did want to ask you, do you know, so in this, in the event that, um, like during her probation, would she face like financial ramifications? Potentially. Like, so in, okay. Cause that the, would change my mind. So there's a number of things that can happen when you get, uh, in front of a, a judge in Kentucky. And it's different depending on the jurisdiction. When you get in front of a judge in Kentucky where you are facing child support issues, there are a number of levels you have to kind of go through. So it starts off as just a civil issue. You pay your support, nothing else really happens. Then you, it slowly becomes a contempt issue where they come after you more seriously and they warn you 
you need to be doing whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. And that is not just my paycheck goes to it. It can be that like you're supposed to be covering a child's benefits, like their medical or health insurance benefits. So Kentucky has a setup where once it's gone on for a minute, they hit class D felony. And that class D felony is actually going to be punishable by jail time, prison time. Now, that's usually not the first thing they hand out, but they could hit you with like somewhere between, I think 90 days would be the minimum and five years would be the maximum on the first offense. And then the second offense, I'm pretty sure it automatically goes to, if you get the second felony, it's six months to a year or six months to five years, depending on how flagrant you're being. Um, and then the third offense usually is one to five year minimums. Now, you can also be hit with fines if that's what you're asking. But typically those fines are, they're kind of put together with what you owe. Well, right. I was thinking more about like, cause you know, to have flagrant non-support, I don't know how much money you're talking about there, but it's, it's not just like regular non-support, right? It's like. It's not the amount. So it's the um, attitude that you've had under Kentucky's revived statutes about this. Uh, it, so I think all child support in Kentucky kind of starts being interesting around a thousand bucks if you owe a thousand dollars. But it's actually the number of times that you, there are two things that factor into it. There's, it's the number of times you've been brought before a judge. And secondly, the amount of time that has passed of consecutive non-support months, I think in Kentucky it's six months, maybe. Um, then the next thing that happens is you can get pimp slapped real hard out there. If you place the dependent in destitute, circumstances. Meaning if there's a situation where whoever, and it doesn't have to be like a spouse that has your children. It could be family has custody of your children. It could be that your child has become a ward of the state. Um, But if they're on public assistance, you become responsible for that public assistance. Like, so that's what, that's how they, that's how they hit you. So non-support is just a misdemeanor. You're looking at a couple hundred bucks for a fine and you can get like a misdemeanor under federal law and most laws is something that you can get up to one year in jail for. A second conviction of a non-support misdemeanor is automatically seven days in jail in a lot of Southern jurisdictions, including in Kentucky. A third uh, uh, conviction you're going to get a minimum of 30 days in jail. And I think the fine goes up to a thousand bucks, but that's the moment where once you've been hit with the third misdemeanor, they start considering you to be flagrant and okay, you're so suddenly had, a felony. She's had to spend time in jail then. Yeah. But like they're quick dips. It's like, they're, they're not like they say seven days you're out in two. They say 30 days you're out in 10 um, it depends on the county that you're in and like how overcrowded their their jail uh, system is. And judges can suspend some of that. Like if you give them a good enough sob story, then like if it looks real, then you could potentially uh, sus- you could you could only do 30 days in jail and then suddenly end up with a felony. Okay. Well, and my my question was basically all I was thinking was that like. It- 
if she's just facing probation uh, that she can handle, she's not going to run off. That's That would be kind of dumb, especially since at this point in time, she would be long past that, right? If she had stayed around. Now, if it's a situation where like she owes X amount of dollars, she knows she's not going to be able to pay it. Uh, last time she was in court, the judge made it clear like what was going to end up happening to her in the event she couldn't pay it. You see what I'm saying? Uh, where if she knew like the probation was just the first step down the downhill slide, right? Yeah. Well, I will say that if you're on supervised probation for a D felony for flagrant non-support in most jurisdictions, that's the moment where it doesn't matter what you do, your bank account gets levied, your wages get garnished, your tax refund is seized. Do you see what I'm saying? And But that doesn't change if you leave, though, right? No, no, no. But I've, I'm sorry. I, I made a leap in my head. I didn't say out loud. I'm picturing these people who are saying they're leaving after getting money from um, money services places. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's somewhere in here, it mentioned Kroger, like going in and somebody wires you 200 bucks or whatever. Right. That's generally not the sign of someone who has like an easily accessible bank account and credit card. Sure. Right. Yeah. But and if you do, you can't use them for whatever reason. But yeah, but yeah, I would, to answer your question, I've now gone on a ramble. To answer your question, absolutely there would be financial ramifications. Right. And so I guess, um, you know, it is possible that uh, she took off and started over, but it seems extreme to me. It's it more, does. It's, it's it's somebody's, Go ahead. I was just going to say, somebody's tracking her names. They put a lot of different names for her in here. Oh, yeah. You're right. There are quite a few uh, different names. And you said it seems extreme, but what? It seems like it would be an extreme reaction, but I mean, I guess it's possible. I gravitate towards like, unfortunately, like I I don't see how she could have maintained uh, her absconder status all this time. Like, I feel like, I mean, it's possible that they're not really looking too hard for her, right? Um, because it, you know, she's just on probation. Uh, but I feel like that's that adds another layer of like a constant lookout, basically, uh, for any missing person, which we know from, you know, historically, sometimes people are entered and we feel like it's wrong for uh, police to enter someone into the, you know, name as database just to find them for whatever legal issue they're facing. And I don't feel like that's what happened here. Um, because I think it's coming from more of a family member's perspective. Yeah, I you know, it's, uh, hmm. I think somebody in this situation, if she's not a victim, let's just go with that for a second. Um, if she is not uh, a victim of some kind who I guess we kind of have to say December 2011 to today, if she is a victim, it's more than likely that she is not uh, well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we have to consider the boyfriend says they get to Tennessee, he gets sick and he ends up in the hospital. That's a weird set of circumstances and never sees her again. But then there's like, that kind of also sounds like she was getting help. So if she's getting help to disappear, then I firmly believe it happened. Because if you're in a situation where you can't see your kids, they're a war of the state or like, the, you know, you're never going to meet the conditions in your head. 
whether that's real or not is irrelevant. If you decide that you're going to bail and you find someone who's going to help you bail and that person doesn't talk, it is possible to end up in a new place with a new identity and to be living a, a, a completely normal life. In my experience, one of two things happens if they really do that. One is they turn their life around and never do the thing they did again. And you would never know them today. The other is they ruin the new identity and they basically prove they're still the same old person and they get caught, which I think is where you're headed with it. I just, I mean, if you really get your life completely together, you don't go make amends with your child. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer I, to that is. Depending on the person, it could be either way. I, I, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm just, I, I hope I'm, that if, if, she, I hope that if she wants to come home, she'll come home. Yeah. I just, you know, in situations like this, I sort of have to throw my hands up in the air and hope for the best because I don't know what was happening here. Um, it's a confounding case. I know by now I've mentioned at least one person that I firmly believe is in witness protection. I know that you and I talked about a sideline case where uh, a couple of guys down in Florida went missing. And once I dug into that, I like presented a scenario to you. And I was like, here's what happened to those guys. And then I found another case that were similar guys like that. I just have to like, I just have to hope for the best for people as far as outcomes to these cases go. Um, right. I don't, and I have like, I, I genuinely, um, I would put this in the pile of, as we get closer to Christmas, you'll notice there's some head scratchers in here. But I will say that anybody that I legitimately feel like is alive and well, I don't mention on our, our true crime access show, right? I, I typically don't do that. I don't mention the, the people that like I have definitely confirmed and there've been a few of those. Unless they're a criminal, I don't mention them here. And she's not that kind of criminal. She's like a, you know, I, I like, like if she and I were friends or family members or whatever, I would have some judgment to lay on her for the children part of it. And, you know, I might even be wrong doing that, but that's just me personally. That's how I would handle it. But in terms of her situation and where she might be today, I would say I am firmly in the camp of, the statistical probabilities say that she's probably a victim of some unfortunate circumstance. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that she was murdered. It's just that she gets off a bus in Louisiana, something bad happens, whatever that it could be an accident. It could be um, a drug related. It could be any number of things that are unfortunate circumstances for her. And th the idea that she was able to start a new life, and become someone else and never get caught for this situation um, is a statistical anomaly, not a probability. Correct. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I have an exoneration today that is an interesting one. Had you ever heard of this one? I vaguely I had, yes. So um, I have briefly heard of this one as well. This comes out of Oregon. Now, in terms of the reported crime, uh, this happens in 1989. The conviction happens in 1991. The sentence for it was life without parole. Uh, now, at the time of the crime, this is a white male who's 29 years old. 
And the exoneration actually occurs this year. The contributing factors to all of this were false confession, perjury or false accusation, inadequate legal defense, and official misconduct. But there was not DNA that contributed to this particular exoneration. I actually feel like the DNA exonerations get a lot of publicity. This is an interesting one for a a number of reasons that we'll get to. On January 17th, 1989, 42-year-old Michael Frankie, the director of the Oregon Department of Corrections, was stabbed to death on the grounds of the Oregon State Hospital in Salem, Oregon. Frankie was last seen alive around 6.45 p.m. near his office in the Dome Building. This is the hospital reception building. For those of you who may have seen, uh, may have read uh, the novel by Ken Kesey, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, this facility is, is the facility that he's talking about there. The dome building housed the administrative offices of the Department of Corrections. Between 7.05 and 7.20 p.m., several people saw Michael's car door ajar in the front parking circle. A security guard found Michael Frank's, Frankie's body several hours later at around 12.40 a.m. outside the north portico of the building. Michael had died of a fatal stab wound to the heart. Evidence showed that Michael had climbed the stairs and attempted to gain entry to a locked door by breaking a pane of glass. He apparently died before getting any further. His body could not be seen from the ground, and it was discovered by a security guard who had climbed up the stairs. The murder weapon was never found. Several months later, in September of 1989, police interviewed Michael Kierens, K-E-E-R-I-N-S, as a possible suspect in this crime. Kierens said that Frank Gable, who had turned 30 a month earlier, had admitted to killing Michael. Michael Kierens said that Frank Gable said he killed him after Michael Frankie caught him burglarizing Michael Frankie's car. Not long after, the news media reported Kieran's claim, and they revealed that Frank Gable, who was a methamphetamine user and drug dealer with uh, past convictions for drug crimes, had also worked as a police informant. Ultimately, police assembled a group of people, all of whom knew Frank from the Salem, Oregon drug scene and all had similarly checkered past. One, Cappy Harden, reported that he saw Frank Gable stab Michael. Cappy claimed that he was at the dome building picking up his girlfriend, Jody Swearingen, when he saw the attack. Five other witnesses claimed that Frank Gable had incriminated himself. On April 8th of 1990, police arrested Frank Gable just before he was set to be released from jail after serving a sentence for domestic abuse. On the next day, April 9th, Frank Gable is charged with Michael Frank's murder, and the prosecution said that it would be a capital case. They would be seeking the death penalty. Frank gave an interview from his jail cell and said, don't let me get railroaded. I just ask that they not stop looking. There's a killer out there somewhere. In March of 1991, Frank goes to trial in Marion County Superior Court in Oregon. 
The prosecution contend that Frank was trying to steal, quote, snitch papers out of Michael Frankie's car when Michael confronted him. Frank then stabbed him and fled. Now, there was no physical or forensic evidence tying Frank Gable to the crime. Wayne Hunsaker, a hospital custodian, testified that around 7 p.m., he saw two men in an altercation facing each other in the parking circle. Wayne said that he could not identify either man, but he said he heard a sound like someone had their breath knocked out of them. He also said that one man whose description resembled Michael Frankie then headed quickly towards the dome building. The other man who was wearing a tan trench coat ran west down the driveway and disappeared behind the hospital's generator. Prior to trial, Michael Kierens, who had been the first to incriminate Frank Gable, he recanted, so he does not end up testifying. But the prosecution has a number of other witnesses. Earl Childers, he testifies that he saw Frank driving near the murder scene and that Frank admitted to stabbing Michael Frankie while Childers and Frank were consuming methamphetamine. Mark Gessner testified that Frank Gable asked him to get rid of a bag of clothing the night of the murder. John Kevin Walker testified that Frank confessed to committing the murder the day after the crime while they were completing a drug deal. And Daniel Walsh told the jury that Frank confessed while he was high a few months after the crime. Additionally, Linda Perkins testified that the morning after the murder, Frank admitted that he had, quote, fucked up big time, and that she would, quote, read about it in the papers. Jane Vieira Gable, who was then Frank's wife, whom he had beaten and had been in jail for the crime of domestic abuse against her immediately prior to the murder, testified that she was home alone with her daughters the night of the murder while Frank stayed out that night with their car. The defense sought to impeach the witnesses with evidence that they all had criminal records. They were either drug dealers or were drug addicts. Police officers testified about what Frank said during several interviews. Although Frank repeatedly and consistently denied killing Michael or knowing who did, he did admit that he had speculated about the case with his friends. Frank Gable also admitted that he frequently wore a tan trench coat that resembled the coat worn by the man that Wayne Hunsaker said he saw running away. In one of the interviews, Frank said, my mind keeps saying, you did it, you did it, you did it, and all of the time I know I didn't. In another exchange, later characterized by an appeals court as, quote, confusing, Frank said that there were only two people who knew who killed Michael Frankie, Michael Frankie and God. When a detective said that Michael Frankie couldn't know because he was dead, Frank replied with a puzzled look, well, there are only two people who know Frankie. Yeah, me and God. Frank then added, I'm going to the end of the trial saying I didn't do this. I'll go to heaven saying it. And all those, quote, fuckers will go to hell for lying. During the interviews, which begins eight months, which began eight months after the murder, Frank said his memory of dates was hazy because of his significant drug use. 
He said he could not be certain of his whereabouts on the night of the crime, but he believed that he was home with his wife hosting a party. He also said he could have been out with a friend doing or selling drugs. The defense sought to present evidence that John Krause had confessed to killing Michael Frankie. A few weeks after the murder, Krause made an unprompted statement to his parole, parole officer that he had information about Michael Frankie's death. At first, Krause said that he saw a group of men beating up another man outside the dome building. But then he said a man named Juan had paid him $300,000 to kill Michael Frankie. Two months later, in April of 1989, John Krause said he was walking by the dome building when he decided to break into a car. He said that Michael Frankie caught him in the act and tried to detain him. Krause said he punched Michael Frankie in the face and stabbed him before running away. John Krause had repeated this confession three more times to family members in the presence of police officers. First, he asked to call his brother. During the call, which was recorded, John Krause admitted to the crime and noted that he might face the death penalty. He then called his mother and he confessed again. And finally, police brought in his girlfriend, and in tears, he confessed the crime to her. But then, John Krause had recanted twice. After his first recantation, he then recanted the recantation days later. In June of 1989, he had said he was involved in a conspiracy with corrections officials who wanted Michael Frankie killed because he had learned they were allowing drugs to be smuggled into the prison. In November of 1989, the prosecution offered John Krause immunity from prosecution for any, quote, false statements to the police. John Krause accepted the offer and then recanted for the final time. Okay, so at this point, I'm not sure if he's recanting the recantation of the recantation or if he's recanting the recanting the recantation of the recantation. Um, my understanding of that situation is he has confessed three times, and each time he has confessed, he has recanted. Okay, that makes sense to me. The defense argues that John Krause had provided details that were consistent with evidence that had not been publicly revealed. This included that Michael Frankie had been stabbed three times. He accurately said he slashed Michael's arms and hands and hit him on the left side of his face and eyeglasses. John Krause admitted he wore a tan jacket as described by Wayne Hunsinger. The prosecution objected and the trial judge refused to allow the evidence to be presented. Jody Swearingen, who from this group of people is Harden's girlfriend, she testified for the defense and rebutted Harden's claim that he saw Gable stab Michael Frankie. She said his account was false and that the police had pressured her to lie to the grand jury to support Harden. The prosecution was allowed to impeach Swearingen with her grand jury testimony, which had corroborated Harden's statement. Frank's landlord testified that Frank and his wife had hosted a loud party the night of the murder. She said she served them with an eviction notice the following day because of the raucous affair. The defense did not use her testimony to impeach Frank's ex-wife or then-wife's testimony that she was home alone all night with her daughter. On June 27, 1991, after a four-month-long trial, the jury convicted Frank Gable of aggravated murder, a capital crime. The jury rejected the prosecution's plea for a death sentence 
and they voted instead to sentence Frank Gable to life in prison without parole. The Oregon Court of Appeals affirmed its conviction in 1994. By then, the facade of the prosecution's case was starting to crumble. In 1993, Walker had admitted that his testimony that Frank had confessed to him was a lie. And he further said that Kieran's and Gessner had admitted to them that they had lied as well. In March of 2007, Frank Gable filed a federal petition for a writ of habeas corpus. The case moved slowly. But in March of 2014, Frank's legal team, Nell Brown and Mark Ailemeyer, filed an amended habeas petition asserting more than two dozen claims for relief. Although 19 of those claims had been defaulted because they were not raised in state court, the federal court eventually ruled that the default was excused because the evidence showed, quote, actual innocence. The petition offered evidence of further recantations. Hardin had recanted in 2005 and again in 2009. He said his trial testimony that he was picking up Swearingen when he saw Frank stab Michael Frankie was fabricated. He said that he first told police that he was not a witness. However, after being repeatedly questioned, polygraphed, and threatened with arrest, and told that Frank had implicated him in the crime, Hardin had decided to frame Frank Gable. In 2010, Swearingen, who had testified for the defense, gave two affidavits saying that she had lied to the grand jury when she said that she and Hardin saw the murder. Swearingen, who was at the time a teenage drug addict, had been polygraphed by police 23 times and interviewed by police 12 separate times prior to testifying before the grand jury. She said that the police had repeatedly threatened to charge her with a crime until she accused Frank. She said that she decided to implicate Frank in part because she believed that as a police informant, he was a rat. Frank's former wife had given a statement in 2010. She said that after having been shown a copy of the eviction note, she recalled that she and Frank had hosted a party the night of the murder. She said that Walker and Gesner had attended. Her statement contradicted her trial testimony that Frank had been out all night. In 2011, Walsh recanted his trial testimony that Gable, while strung out on drugs, had admitted that he stabbed Michael Frankie after Michael Frankie caught Gable jockey boxing Frank's car. The term is used to describe the action of walking along cars and pulling on car door handles to find an unlocked vehicle to search for valuables. Walsh said that Frank never confessed to him. In 2015, Walker gave an additional recantation, repeating that he and Gessner were at the party. He added that his testimony at the trial, that he had not seen Frank until the day after the murder, was false. Walker and Walsh said they went, that when police first interviewed them, they said they knew nothing about the murder. However, after being repeatedly polygraphed and told their claims of ignorance were untruthful, they relented. Walker said he was threatened with being charged with Michael Frank's murder. He also said that he and Gessner had been arrested in a drug raid prior to the murder after Frank snitched on him. So he and Gessner retaliated by falsely implicating Frank. Childers, who had testified that he saw Gable driving near the scene of the murder and that Frank had later confessed to him, no longer had confidence that either fact was true. During the habeas litigation, 
Frank's lawyers presented the opinion of Dr. David Raskin, an expert in experimental psychology and human psychophysiology. He said he researches and trains law enforcement on polygraph techniques. And he said that the techniques used in this case suggested the police were using polygraphs as a psychological club in order to elicit statements from witnesses. He also said during the polygraph sessions, the police confronted the witnesses with the purported results, accused them of lying when they were actually truthful, fed them information, and kept repeating polygraphs until their stories were deemed to be truthful. He said of he said the 23 polygraphs administered to Swearingen were the most he had ever encountered for one person. The coercive techniques were heightened by the abusive and frightening interrogation techniques, threats of prosecution in prison, threats concerning the witnesses' children and families, as well as promises of rewards. In April of 2019, U.S. Magistrate Judge John Acosta, in a 94-page ruling, granted Frank's petition on the grounds that his defense could have, should have been allowed to present the evidence of John Krause's admissions at his trial. Judge Acosta also ruled that Frank's trial defense lawyers had provided an inadequate legal defense by failing to present appropriate legal support, including citation of federal law in support of John Krause's guilt. Judge Acosta granted the writ, ordered Frank's conviction conviction be vacated and granted a new trial. The prosecution appealed, but on June 28th of 2019, Frank was released on bond. On September 29th of 2022, the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals affirmed the new trial ruling, and they noted that the facts on appeal were extraordinary. Since trial, nearly all the witnesses who directly implicated Frank Gable have recanted. Many explained they intended to frame him because he was a police informant. They attribute their false testimony to significant investigative misconduct, which the state, remarkably, does not dispute. What we now know, and the jury did not, is that the testimony of the state's main witnesses was irreversibly tainted by coercive investigative techniques and that another man gave compelling confessions on multiple occasions. The court painstakingly detailed the recantations and concluded that in the aftermath, the only prosecution witness left was Linda Perkins, who said that the morning after the murder, Frank said he had done something bad. However, the court noted that two people who were present during that conversation had said that Linda Perkins was not truthful. One of those two, Randy Stutter, said that he too had been questioned by police, said he knew nothing, but After he was repeatedly polygraphed and interrogated, he agreed to falsely accuse Frank before the grand jury. Stutter had recanted prior to the trial. He did not testify, and to this day maintains that Linda Perkins made up her story. The appeals court said that the trial judge's exclusion of the evidence of John Krause's confessions, relying upon application of the Oregon evidence rules, was incomplete and almost certainly wrong. But even if the application of the rule was correct, the exclusion violated Frank's right to due process. John Krause's confessions have strong indication, uh, indicia of reliability. He confessed within months of the murder multiple times in several forms to nearly unimpeachable witnesses and his family with no apparent ulterior motive and clearly against his own penal interest. 
The court noted that, that Frank's defense was innocence, but the exclusion of Krauss left only Frank in view. As the only suspect, Frank's cryptic statements to the police and his meth-fueled boasts to his friends appeared to confirm the police's focus on him at trial. That evidence, however, pales in comparison to Krauss's detailed and accurate confessions made under circumstances that strongly support the reliability. On May 8, 2023, Judge Acosta ordered the indictment against Gable to be dismissed with prejudice, meaning that Gable could not be tried again. What did you think of this case? Man, <laughs> you got to wonder, okay, you've got a guy confessing, all right? And you've got this guy confessing on multiple occasions to multiple different people. His initial statement was like an unprovoked, spontaneous statement to his proba- probation or parole officer, right? And... And then you go completely out of your way after this other dude? I don't understand why they did it. I, you know, that was the one thing with this case that was confounding to me, among many things that were confusing to me. Um, I could not figure out for the life of me how they just have a witness. I, I mean, they have a suspect sitting there telling them what they need to know. And they go through all these hoops to put all this other stuff together. Does it make any sense to you? Not a bit. I don't understand it. And I feel like if we knew everything, that there's some sort of vindictive motive. There there has to be uh, as far as uh, Frank goes, right? I feel like somebody besides just, you know, all the people that, like lied and testified against him, right? I feel like there had to be some sort of underlying issue because when you've got somebody confessing, and you know, the he, his confession was credible, right? And he also like they gave him multiple opportunities and he like continued to confess in front of the various important people in his life, which is strange, but he did it, right? But then they let him recant all that. Well, then you've got this guy who said, like, I haven't done it, but I feel like that there is a sense um, for investigators that once they're on the trail of something, because, you know, they initially they have an eyewitness, right? Who the eyewitness, yeah. of course, after he's in too deep, he he recants his testimony and he ends up not testifying, but by then they've got all this other stuff lined up. Right. Um, and so it's like they double down on their position, which is not in the interest of justice for anybody. Right. Is that ego? What is like, what makes them, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that, um, it's actually sort of human nature and it's actually something that, it's almost like investigators need to fight that urge because it it can be disastrous, which I, I feel like this is a really good example of this disaster uh, unfolding over the course of um, 34 years, right? It, um, it took a really long time to get it all the way back through the system 
when they had their finger on the pulse the whole time, they knew who did this. And, you know, are they going to go back and charge this guy? That's an excellent question. Um, I, I did not find anything saying that they were going to do that. Uh, Doesn't that go along with the thought that like they doubled down on their position? Because I feel like the way it's laid out here uh, in the summary that we went over, which means somebody, you know, some spectacular appeals lawyer was able to get enough of a record together to present this to the appeals court, right? Yes. And the and, state doesn't even question the fact that, like, it's pretty clearly misconduct. Right. Well, they don't even say, like, oh, yeah, that didn't happen, right? There, there is nothing to be uh, said there, right? And that, you know, that's a lot, I think. And it it sort of makes you wonder, well, do they know this? And then, you know... Where's John Krause now? And I couldn't find him. Did you find him in all of this? I I haven't been. I mean, I don't know how common of a name that is. Um, the only things I had coming up were actually things that had to do with this, right? Yeah, that's um, a, yeah. It, this this buries it basically, right? Because it all comes up, right? And so, you know, how does this work out in the end? How is it that you've got you know, Frank Gable, who is like harassed to no end to the point where he spends 30 plus years in jail, uh, having been convicted for this crime. It's fortunate he didn't get the death penalty, right? Yeah, um, right. When you've got a con another uh, suspect with con three confessions on the table, right? Now, yep. somebody saw something in those confessions initially, because otherwise they wouldn't have had him continue to make them. Right. Okay. And then the recantations. And so, like, I don't know. I I don't feel like, um, like this type of situation. Of course, you know, court, uh, the judicial system, when something goes before, you know, a court of appeals, they give back their opinion. There's not a discussion here, right? It's it's they rule on it and they, they explain their ruling to whatever extent they want to. In this particular case, I feel like it would be warranted to say, hey, what were you guys thinking? Well, to the investigators that initially dismissed the <laughs> confession, right? Well, how, how do we even get to a point in here? And this is just me sort of wrapping up my thoughts. How do you, how do you make it so that it's okay for them to then like, can they even try another person? Does that make sense? Well, like how do you, well, are they seeking justice? Okay. I understand what you're saying, but like, isn't there an automatic defense here for, for a new party to say, look, they already tried one guy and put him in prison. Don't do that to me too. Well, yeah, I mean, there could be, but I feel like uh, because everything was dismissed, there was a lot. I, I feel like that could be just as damaging for them to bring up as it could be. It could be just as prejudicial as it is, right? Yeah. As far as like, you know, where are you going here? Well, I mean, I don't know that it's going to, I mean, maybe it would. 
sway, right? But this guy, I just, I find a really, it's a really difficult thing for me to believe uh, the two sides of the coin here where you've got one guy like staunchly saying, I was, I did not do this. And then you've got somebody confessing three times and they're like, yeah, we're going to go with that other guy that said he didn't do it. Right. You're an idiot. I, <laughs> I'm with like, you. What, what were they thinking? And, you know, I mean, ugh, just, I feel like if I had done something like that, I would say that I'm an idiot and I need to give up on investigating stuff. I don't want to take it as that harsh a thing, but normally I... four years. Normally I try and not take it on that harsh an approach. Uh, this has been covered elsewhere. If you go looking for this case, and I'm not entirely sure who it is off the top of my head, but there are a couple of places that you can listen to podcasts and see documentaries about this case. Um, I don't think you can try John Krause in this at all, but I am so glad that, like, and this is weird to say, that Frank Gable is going to be home for the holidays. Right, finally. It's been a and, really long time. It's hard to say that because, you know, he, like, you know, it, th these are all miscreants. All of the people in, in this case on the prosecution's witness list and the defendant have all been in jail for things. They've had lots of stuff go on in their lives. Um, he's in jail, he gets out of jail and immediately sort of, it, you know, it's, it's wild to see that happen. And then to also want justice for Michael Frankie to have to happen out of that. I don't know. I don't think, you know, I think, I think the knowledge that John Krauss did it, who I was not able to find, but I did look, I did look for John Krauss, but I was not able to find him. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what has happened with that. Um, he kind of comes in and, um, man, it, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, um, I, it, I don't know if you, which I haven't read this, so we're probably not going to get into it. But you know that the state uh, or the state of Oregon petitioned to have uh, they petitioned the United States Supreme Court to have Frank Gable's conviction reinstated. Uh, recently, uh, it was April twenty fourth, twenty twenty three. And what and, happened? Uh, they didn't. Well, they just denied the petition. They declined the petition. But I just thought that was interesting. So talking about doubling down, I may see where the investigators get it from. That's what I was about to say to you. I don't know that this is all the investigators, but like, can you imagine being a prosecutor and thinking that like this is your circus and you're owning these monkeys of what you're doing to this case? You have a guy who has confessed multiple times and it's not like it's hidden. It's just not allowed into the trial. Yeah. So everybody knows it's happening, but like they're all sort of going, I, I like these gymnastics better. Sort and, of. And, yeah. And, and I, I can't like, that is so strange to me because the level of gymnastics they go to here is absolutely mind boggling. And I, you know, I tried to summarize this the best I could. Um, there's a couple of different sources we used, including the Registry of Exonerations, and we just sort of pulled directly from that. That pulls from all the other sources that we had on our list. Now, this has gone all the way, like, except for, um, 
we know that the Supreme Court declined to hear uh, the petition, but so but you've got the state of Oregon going that far. So we know the whole circle of this, right? Right. Okay. And so without knowing the whole circle, when you're in the middle of all that, uh, before like finally he's exonerated and then like uh, his convictions vacated, it's sent for a new trial. Then the trial court judge says, uh, I'm dismissing the charges without pre- uh, with prejudice. So you can never be charged with this again because that's how uh, convinced that judge was, right? Yeah. Um, so it, when you're in the middle of that, before that occurs, doesn't it feel a little bit like you're being gaslit? Yeah. Not a little bit. Like a lot, right? Okay. And so to me, it makes me wonder, like, how 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 are so many people not seeing this, right? Look. And it really messes with your head. I'm just saying. But they, you know, I find it so difficult um, to wrap my head around what's happening there. And it has to be perspective. Don't you think they just don't have the right perspective on what they're trying to accomplish and they're too um, tunnel visioned on it or something. I can't tell what's going on there. It's, 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 it's a mixture of tunnel vision and like, it's almost like somebody in this pile I don't know, man. I can't tell if somebody's mad at this guy because it looks like he's an informant for the police who are then coming after him. That gets confusing for me for a number of reasons. And I tried to sort it in in a way that I could tell the story from a slightly different angle. Sure. And I, I couldn't figure it out. But don't you think with everything that was like sort of put out there, whoever would have the authority to change to you know have the state go to the United States Supreme Court and make this petition for his conviction to be reinstated like why aren't they seeing what everybody else sees okay there's no slant to the profile to this like it has been said by a federal court judge and partly agreed to by both the defense and the prosecution well i know so why are they why is it continuing? To me, it's just crazy. I, I, I want to understand it, but I feel like that's something I'm never going to be able to get in the mindset of. Well, here's the conclusion I came to. And this is my last thought on this case. If you have anything else, here's my thought. So you have two people in this situation at the core of this in terms of Frank Gable's trials who are both connected to law enforcement in the state of Oregon. You've got Michael Frankie, who is connected to the Department of Corrections, and you've got an informant on the lowest of the low end of things. My only thought is that they consider this to be a cop murder. Therefore, the attorney general, as an office, and an institution, not as an individual set of people, must, no matter what, fight to the end for convictions and cop murders. Now, rather than spending the time and money that it would take to do the the writ to petition the Supreme Court of the United States, they would be better suited to go after John Krause, 
but he something has happened where he's either indisposed to them or they realize like how bonkers trying to prosecute John Krauss would be now that they provided him 34 years worth of defense because they have gone back time and time again to every appellate court and said, no, it's this guy. It's this guy. It's this guy. So they basically like wrote the defense lawyer's case for them. If John Krauss were to ever be accused of Michael Franken's murder. And that's the only thing I can think of is like, they won't have justice for Michael Franken, but sometimes justice is in the eye of the beholder. Like the, what that would mean here is like, Michael Franke is remembered. Like, good, bad, whatever outcome of this case, he his name has continued to be out there. And people have been fighting. That, or, go ahead. I don't know that being remembered is justice, though. Well, the fact that everyone knows John Krause did this and confessed to it is justice in a way. It's certainly not justice for Frank Gable, but the punishment in all of this, I don't know, man. Like I was about to say something I thought was going to be pretty profound, but now that I say it out loud, it sounds kind of stupid. And I go back to all the resources these people are wasting. Right. No. Yeah. Justice was like, without question, infallibly denied in this case. Okay. Well, that's all I got. What else you got on this one? Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabradiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabradiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252 365 Five five nine three. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at 
Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXCESS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some Cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution, or an ORS, that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXCESS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-XS. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and true crime access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural real food ingredients all Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. 
I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but It's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. 
it's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.